uh, you're wearing underneath, you can peel that off. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, we do try to accommodate everybody's needs and desires. Um, sometimes we're successful, sometimes not so much. But in any case, hopefully we'll be able to keep everybody awake with the temperature elevated here this morning as we uh, worship the Lord together through His Word. This morning, we are continuing our study uh, through the little book of Micah. And the book of Micah includes three messages, three sermons, three oracles that are issued by the prophet Micah. And you can identify each of them uh, where they begin and end uh, because a, a, a new one starts, in every case, with the word here. And um, Micah uh, deliberately starts that way, I think, because the great confession of all the nation of Israel, it, all, it begins in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4, with the same word, here. In other words, hey, everybody listen up. God's got something he wants to say. All right? That is the idea uh, behind the use of that word, here. Hear what the Lord has to say. And the first one begins in chapter 1, verse 2, and it continues all the way to chapter 3 in verse 1. So the first two chapters of the first oracle, and then the second one begins in the beginning of chapter 3 and continues through chapter 5, and then the last one is chapter 6 and 7. Uh, the Chapter numbers are not inspired. They're not originally part of the text. They were put in in the 1500s uh, by a, uh, uh, a book publisher, believe it or not. A guy wanted to make it easier for people to find where we were at in the Bible, and he, so he put in the versification and the chapter numbers. Uh, those are not inspired. Originally, they didn't appear there. But we have them uh, there for us. It makes it easier for us to reference. Um. Micah is like many of the prophets in that he begins by talking a whole lot about judgment. Remember we talked about that last week? That the prophets start out with judgment, judgment, judgment is coming. A little bit of hope right down here. And then judgment is coming. A little more hope, right? And, uh, and so they start off with announcing all of this judgment that's going to befall in hopes that the people will hear the message and like the people of Nineveh under the preaching of Jonah the prophet will repent and go, you know what? Uh, I heard what God was telling us He was going to do. If we didn't repent, I'm getting right with God now and so that the judgment won't fall on me. And, and uh, Micah's first oracle begins announcing essentially a court case that God is bringing against his people. And he's saying, everybody listen up, because I've got some things I need to say to my people. And they are guilty of violating the law. They have broken the covenant that I have made with them. And therefore, the covenant curses are going to come upon them. Now, you may not have spent a lot of time in Deuteronomy. Uh, thing that I actually would recommend that you fix, if that's true. Uh, Deuteronomy is a great book. It has a lot of great stuff to say. Someday we'll get there. But uh, Deuteronomy has a couple of great sections. And 
and it's actually set up uh, with the people as they're about to go into the land. Uh, God speaks uh, through Moses, and he tells them, when the people get into the land, this is where they're to go, and this is what they're to do. They're to have a covenant renewal ceremony, and you're to stand part of the people on Mount Ebal and part of them on Mount Gerizim. And those are two little mountains next to the city of Shechem. And they do this. And uh, Mount Ebal is just ugly and bald and nasty and nothing grows on it. And Mount Gerizim is lush and beautiful and green. And on one on one mound they put they put six tribes, and on the other they put uh, the other six. And six tribes represent God's blessing, and six tribes represent God's cursing. In other words, if you obey the covenant, you'll experience God's blessing. And and as you stand on these two mountains, they're like a natural amphitheater, and you can hear back and forth as they shout. And so on one side, they they shout. Obey the Lord, and blessed will you be in the country, and blessed will you be in the city, and blessed will be your fields, and blessed will be the fruit of your womb, and blessed will be your flocks, and blessed will be your herds, and the Lord will expand your boundaries, and you will have uh, bounty and prosperity, and you will have these great blessings. And on the other side, they shout the curses. If you reject the Lord, if you pursue idols, If you violate the covenant, then cursed will you be in the country, and cursed will you be in the city, and cursed will be the fruit of your womb, and cursed will be your flocks, and cursed will be your herds, and and you will experience famine, and drought, and pestilence, and conquering, and exile, and death. And God is saying through the prophets, these curses are about to come on you. In fact, you're experiencing part of them right now. And you need to repent that you might experience God's blessing. And so the prophet's job is to remind people of what the covenant is, that they might obey it and experience God's blessing. That they might experience life rather than death. That they might experience prosperity rather than poverty. That they might experience joy rather than agony. And so Micah is calling the people to repent of what's going on. And, he's call, and he calls in, in chapter 1, verse 2, he calls all the nations around to as witnesses. He says, look, I've got a case against my people. And if you hear the evidence, you will understand that they are guilty of covenant breaking. And they need to renew their covenant with me and obey So he's going to give some specifics, some additional specifics of how his people are breaking their covenant. And he's going to talk about, first of all, sins of the people and then sins of these other prophets, these false prophets that the people are following and believing. And then he's going to talk at the end. We're going to start to get our first little hints of hope and restoration and and the and the grace of God coming to his people, his steadfast love remaining for them, even in the midst of discipline, even in the midst of judgment. So if you've got your Bible there, uh, go to uh, the book of Micah, chapter 2. We're going we're to look at the whole chapter here this morning. So 
This is how it begins. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against this family. Behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast a line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Now, he starts off by saying, Woe to those who work, who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. Again, remember... Um, Micah is written in Hebrew, Hebrew poetic style, which means that he writes in parallel ideas. And these two, these two lines that begin his uh, woe announcement, it's not woe like stop the horse, it's woe like judgment is coming. He says, he says, woe to these kind of people. Judgment is coming against these kind of people. And it's, it's parallel ideas ways of saying the same thing twice in a different way. And he says that they go to bed each night, essentially, thinking up new ways of sinning in the morning. They can't rest until they've devised some new evil plot to engage in the following day. Well, tomorrow, I'm going to do this. I haven't done enough evil for this week, so I've got to come up with some more to do tomorrow can't sleep until they have a new evil plan to enact. And the first thing in the morning, when morning dawns, they're up and at them, putting it into practice. Because they are powerful enough to make it happen. He says, because it's in the power of their hand. In other words, these are evil people in positions of power. And they are thinking, essentially, that, well, because I can get away with it, I'm going to do this. And no one can stop me. And might makes right. And God says in verse 2 that they're violating the sin of coveting, which is the tenth commandment. Remember, you shall not covet neighbor's field or your neighbor's house or your neighbor's maidservant or your neighbor's manservant or your neighbor's wife or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And they're coveting everything that belongs to their neighbor. And finding a way to take it. They are taking advantage of their poorer neighbor's property. And they're seeking a way to seize it legally. Uh, legally, by the way, different than in our world. The way that the land was divided up. Each family as they came into the land under Joshua. Each tribe was allotted a certain area of the nation. This is the boundaries of your tribe. And then within that, each tribe then allotted out the land by family. And so you would have multiple generations of the same family living on the same piece of ground, but that remained your family's inheritance. And you couldn't sell it. 
you could only rent it to somebody temporarily for up to 50 years. And then at the end of that 50-year period in the year of Jubilee, all the land went back to the original family owners. But what these people are doing is not only finding ways to steal other people's inheritance in a legal way. They're not participating in the year of Jubilee. They're just buying it as if it doesn't belong to anybody. But all the land in Israel belonged not to the people, but to the Lord. And he said, you all are my tenants. And you are, he says, coveting fields and seizing them and houses and taking them away and oppressing a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. The idea was that every family, there were not to be any poor people in Israel. Every person, at least once a generation, would get back everything that belonged to their family, their houses, their fields, their farms, their inheritance. So that no one was ultimately destitute forever. And yet that's not what is happening in Micah's day. And they're taking advantage. And God says, well, look, I'm a just God. And you wicked people who are taking advantage of your neighbors and seizing their property. I'm going to bring on you the same kind of thing that you are bringing on the people you're oppressing. And he says, in fact, he says in verse uh, verse three, that there's a particular family. It says against this family, I am devising disaster. So it's most probably a reference to a portion of the royal family who are the most prominent people in Israel. Uh, it's quite possibly also including some of the noblemen. And it will be, God says, a disaster you can't escape from any more than an ox can get out of an ox yoke after you put it on him. Now, oxen don't have hands. They can't reach up there and take that thing off. He says, I'm going to put this, I'm going to hang this disaster around your neck and you're going to experience everything that you are putting under, putting on everybody else that's under you. Because I am a just God. And he says in verse 4, he says, look, your pride, verse 3, is going to be smashed. You cannot walk haughtily anymore. In other words, these people think that they're getting away with it. And so they've kind of like, kind of got a little swagger to them. God says, I'm going to take that away. And it's going to come upon you the same thing that you're dishing out to other people. And you're not going to do that. You're not going to walk with the swagger anymore because you're going to experience it. Suffering you're inflicting. And he says, in that day, they, meaning the people you are now oppressing, are going to take a taunt song up against you and moan bitterly. And they're going to say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me to an apostate. He allots our fields. You know what they're doing? How many of you have kids that are like school age and younger? Raise your hand. Okay. All right. Now, you guys know, you've heard this. You know what a taunt song is. You're not Hebrew, but let, let me explain. If you have school-age kids, and, and you have one kid that is bugging and annoying the other one, do you know what they do? They repeat what the other one says, right? 
stop touching me. Stop touching me. You know, this kind of stuff, right? Back and forth. And there, the one is repeating what the other one said. Only here's what these people are doing. They're taking what they said when this rich oppressor took their stuff. And now all of a sudden the shoe is on the other foot. And this guy is experiencing what he has done to these poor people. And so now they're singing the same song that he's saying. He said, you know, this this rich nobleman, formerly rich, is now enslaved and going into exile. And he's like, oh, woe is me. We're utterly ruined. God changed a portion of my inheritance. And all these poor people are going, oh, isn't it awful? He took away your stuff. Ooh. Yeah, we don't know anything about what that's like. Imagine you being dis, you're being dispossessed. That's so terrible. That's a taunt song, okay? That's kick the guy when he's down, twist the knife, and break the handle off. Um, this is this is what they're going to do. He says because this is what you caused everybody else to say. Now, when you're saying it, everybody around you is going to mock you with your own words. And he says, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. See, the way the inheritance was originally divided up was by lot. That they rolled dice, and however the dice came up, well, that's how you got your assigned fields and farms. Uh, back in the days of Joshua, that's what they did. And, and you had to have a representative of your family there in order to receive your portion. And he says, because you've robbed, this is God's justice again at work. He says, because you've robbed other people of their inheritance, you won't have anybody there when the land is redivided. Stand in for you to receive a share. Because you've stripped other people, I'm going to make sure that you are stripped of your inheritance. You'll have no inheritance in the land anymore. And by the way, that is from a... Hebrew perspective, that's the worst thing that could happen. That you would be dispossessed and have no inheritance in the land. Because it's as if, in a sense, you don't exist as a person in that community. You've been banished. And you have no share in the people of God. God says, I'm going to cut you off. And, and in that verse, by the way, I want you to see this. Verse 5 is all about judgment on the oppressive wicked. But within it, there's a subtle note of hope for everybody else. Because he's, it, when you announce a curse like this, when you say, you say, well, you're not going to have anybody, when we redivide the land, you're not going to have anybody to stand in for your family. What does that imply? that you might be going into exile, but there's going to be a day when everybody comes back. In other words, that God's judgment is not going to be permanent. That you're not going to be permanently out of the land. That there's going to be a day when, like Joshua uh, did with the people coming in from the wilderness wandering, that they're going to come in from the, from the wilderness again. And the land is going to be redivided again. And just like in the days of Joshua, they're going to cast lots and assign portions to people 
again. And so even in the midst of announcing judgment, God is also giving them hope. If you're never coming back to the land, who cares if you get a share in it? But it matters if there's going to be a day when you're going to come back. He's saying, look, the exile is not going to last forever, but these wicked leaders, they're not going to get their share because of their wickedness now, because they're violating comfort. God is offering hope for some, even as he is announcing judgment on others. Now, I want to take just a minute before we go any further and just consider how this section might apply to us. Because God's word is really strong here against the sin of coveting and against using any and all legal means to get what you want. By the way, I think our society, just as, a, just as an aside, I think our society is basically built on that. That we use any and all legal means to get what we want. And, and that's coveting. But let's consider for a moment just personally. Let me just ask some questions. First of all, do you sinfully desire what your neighbor or some random person has that you do not? You spend a lot of time thinking about being consumed by desiring that which you don't have but somebody else does. Think about how much reality TV is built on this. Right? That you you pick some rich family or whoever, you know, the Kardashians or whatever. Those people are a train wreck. I never wanted anything that they had ever. All right? But nevertheless, nevertheless, you know, you know, or or they would do, you know, back when I was a kid, they had um, uh, what was that guy's name? Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Right? I don't even remember. I remember he had a British accent. That makes everybody sound smart. Uh, but in any case, they would take you in, or they or they have you know cribs or whatever on TV, you know, and you go see somebody's house. And the whole idea is, look at how fabulously wealthy these people are. And also. Look at what complete morons they are and what they spent it on. Right? Like, do you really need a gold-plated toilet handle? Really? You know, do, do you really need Italian marble in your mop closet? Probably not. But nevertheless, you know, the whole idea is to create envy in everybody else and to, and to have coveting be going on. And we can, not only with those kind of people, celebrities and, and uh, you know, people who are, famous for being famous and all of that. But we can also, even with our neighbors, do that kind of thing. Well, I wish I had that job. wish I had that car. I wish I had their house instead of my house. I wish I had their garden instead of my garden. I mean, even with real ordinary stuff, we can start focusing on what God has given someone else more than we focus on what God has given me, and we're engaged in coveting. And comparing God's relative blessing between us and saying, well, that should be mine instead of theirs. 
covet. How about this? Do you think about some material thing, if only I had X, Y, or Z, then I could be happy and content with life. That's coveting. If only I had, if only, I, if only Ted McMahon, or not Ed McMahon, would show up at my house. Yeah, okay. If only Ed McMahon would show up at my house with the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes check, then I would be happy and content with life. If only I had a house in that neighborhood. If only I had a Mercedes SL. If only I had 4,000 acres of prime pheasant hunting property in South Dakota. You know, I mean, if only I had that, okay, <laughs> if only I had that, then I would be happy, right? No, well, you wouldn't. You'd be the same miserable, ornery cuss you are today, just with more stuff. Okay? It's coveting. coveting and it's a form of idolatry by the way putting material things and material stuff ahead of your relationship with God and letting things be a blessing of your relationship with God not a replacement coveting last question now I'm really going to meddle are you delighted when other people are blessed are you happy when other people get blessings that you don't have? Or are you envious and jealous, thinking that should be mine? Are you envious and jealous when other people are blessed? You know, there's always... Here's, here's what I notice about me. I'll just speak about me, and you all can apply as it, as it, as it does. There's, whenever I get something that I really have wanted for a while, you know what I find out? It makes me really happy for a couple days, and then there's something else I want. And then, it's, and then after I have that, well, then there's something else I want. And then there's something else I want. And the list of things that I need keeps expanding. You know, when I, when I was a single guy, I could have moved everything I owned in the back of a pickup truck. Now that I am a married man of 17 years with six children, it would take a semi to load it all in. Right? I kid you not. Not six. Four children. <laughs> it only feels like six. <laughs> oh, well. I added a couple. Uh, I know I'm not making an announcement. <laughs> okay. Totally lose track. All right. There's always, point being, there's always something else we want or need, right? Six people in my family. Four of them are kids. All right. All right, I totally lost everybody. 
But let's try and wind it back in anyway to the glory of God. And, and just remember this, okay? That God condemned coveting in all of its forms. And we all already have, it's Thanksgiving, we all already have far more than we need. Far more. And if everything were taken away from you tomorrow, it matters whether or not your life would be over. Or if it's just Let's move on. Here we go. Verse 6. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher this people. Now, there are two kinds of prophets that are at work in, my, in Micah's day. There are true prophets like Micah and Isaiah who are speaking from the Lord and they are speaking whether the word was hopeful and encouraging or whether it was about judgment and wrath. And there's also some other kinds of prophets. There are false prophets also among the people and they are preaching only what the people want to hear. Micah quotes some of what they said. Now, the ESV, I have a disagreement with the ESV uh, text here, in, in that uh, I think that Micah is quoting them right up into, through the middle of verse 7, uh, all of 6, and through half of 7, up to the word deed. And then the Lord takes over with, do not my words do good. Uh, so I think that's where the quotation mark should end, is right there with deeds. Um, what they're doing is they're emphasizing, all they're, all they're walking about, talking about, is, is this. No, God's not going to bring this. They tell Micah, hey, shut up, man. People don't want to hear that. Stepping on their groove, man. Come on. Besides that, no one should preach of that kind of stuff. Disgrace is not going to overtake us. God's not going to judge. God hasn't grown impatient. These, you know, judgment is not the way he works. So cool your jets, man. Relax. Chill out. Don't talk to people about judgment and wrath. God won't do that to us. We're his people. God takes over in verse 7. He says, Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly. In other words, God is saying this. He's saying, Hang on, wait a minute. Yes, I send forth preachers to talk about hope and love and grace and forgiveness 
and mercy. But I also send forth preachers to talk about wrath and judgment and the need for repentance so that people will be delivered. And in either case, that my words do good to people who have ears to hear them and who are walking in the right way. And the only kind of people who aren't interested in hearing what I have to say are those who don't walk uprightly. If you're a righteous person, when you're confronted with sin, you repent. Amen? And you, therefore, you don't need to worry about God's judgment. Therefore, God's words do you good. Even when they're hard words. But these people, God's people here that Micah is speaking to, need to worry. He says, verse 8, my people have risen up as an enemy. In other words, you have rebelled against me. And he says that ironically, your continued rebellion is going to result in the thing you most fear, which is judgment. That all the things that your false prophets are telling you aren't going to happen are going to happen because you're listening to them rather than listening to me. And he says, and so he puts on them the blame for what is going to happen. He says, by listening to the false prophets, you strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. In other words, war is coming, like it or not. Unless you repent. And by refusing to repent and by listening to these false prophets, what you're doing, you false prophets, is stripping off all the good clothes from people who you have convinced that war is not coming. You've told them, no, God won't go to war against us. And he's saying, because you've convinced everybody that that's true, then war is coming. And they're going to lose all their clothes from the Gap and Banana Republic. All right? That's coming. And he says, the women you drive out from their delightful houses. You know what happens when war comes? I'm not talking about like when the United States goes to war. I'm talking about real war. In a real war, what happens is this. That everybody gets driven out and everything of value is taken. And all of the native people, he says, you're driving, you'll drive out all of the women out, out of, the, of the land of Israel out of their houses. Why? Because they'll be taken. All the houses will be taken and all the women will be taken off as captives. And he says, and you're going you're gonna to take all the young children away from the presence of God forever because they're going to be taken as captives too. And he's saying to these false prophets, and you know what? It's your fault. Because when I spoke about judgment, you didn't announce it. You kept saying, everything is fine. Y'all remember Baghdad Bob, by the way? Remember him? The tanks are rolling in to the Baghdad airport. He's standing out there, and there's American flags popping in the breeze behind the tank. And he's like, the American advance has been halted. Right? And there they are in the background on the camera. That's what these prophets are like. They're like Baghdad Bob. Going, everything is fine. God will not judge. And here come 
the Babylonian chariots over the hill. He's saying, you have got to speak of me rightly. And because you don't, judgment is coming. And you could have escaped if you had just said what I said to all these people. They would have repented and listened. But instead, they're going to be carried into captivity and exile and all their possessions taken from them. And he says, he says, verse 10, get out of here. Let me translate from Hebrew. Get gone. This is no place for you. Away with you. Because of the uncleanness that destroys. In other words, all the stuff you have allowed these people to participate in and encourage them to keep doing has defiled the land, and I'm going to cleanse it by taking them all out of here. And he says in verse 11, let me tell you what the right kind of prophet for you people is. It's the kind who prophesies about free beer. It's going to be a party. God's not going to judge. There's no wrath coming. Based on your rebellion, that's not going to happen. Pass the beer. That's the right kind of preacher for these folks. Well, I think there's some good stuff in this section, too, for those who preach and teach God's word and those who listen to it. First, I think, just by way of application, those of us like me, those of us like some of you ladies and gentlemen who preach and teach God's word to our people in Sunday school and in small groups and in Bible studies and in other contexts, Hear what the Lord is saying here. Is it true that God is patient and loving and full of grace? Yes. Is it true that he loves us no matter what we have done? Yes. Is it true that even the very worst of people can come to God and by his grace receive forgiveness and mercy? Absolutely, and we never need to get tired of telling people that. Never. We need to always be telling people about how God is gracious to a thousand generations of those who love Him. At the same time, you've got to preach the flip, the, preach and teach the flip side of the coin. Amen? That He is a God of holiness and wrath and judgment right along with that. And you have not, as an example, shared the gospel with someone if you have never told them that there is a door number two and not everybody goes to heaven. And that if you persist in your sin and never repent and turn to faith, turn in faith to Jesus Christ who died on the cross and was raised from the dead, that you will be in hell. And if you never say that to someone, you have been an unfaithful teacher and preacher of God's word. Seventy times Jesus uses the word hell to describe what happens to people who never put their trust. A hundred and sixty times in the New Testament alone, 
the word hell is described as a place where real people really go to face eternal judgment. And so we have to. We can't write that off and say, well, that was the Old Testament. You know, God was a God of wrath back then. But, you know, then he had a son at Christmas and he mellowed out. Don't say that to people. That isn't true. That's wrong. It's, it's unfaithful to say that to people. He is a God of grace, but he is also a God of judgment. He is still the God who appears out of heaven riding on a white stallion with a robe dipped in blood and out of his mouth comes a sharp sword and tattooed on his thigh is a name written that only he knows and he is called faithful and true. And that's with that sword that comes out of his mouth, he wages war against the nations. And he casts into hell those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. But he came as a baby to be born to be sacrificed that no one would wind up there. He is a God of grace, but also a God of justice. He is, the, he is the babe in the manger and the crucified God who hung between earth and sky to make peace between us and God, but he is also the black-robed deity who sits on a throne and opens the books. And you have to tell people both sides. Or they will believe you when they say all is well. And that's all they will. And those of us who listen to God's word preach. I include myself in this category too. We need to be careful that we don't pick out for ourselves people who tickle our ears and tell us only what we want to hear. There are guys on TV that do this all the time. There are women on TV that do this all the time. And they talk about prosperity and how if you pray, then God will, you know, will bless you financially. And they tell you that God loves you and he has a marvelous plan for your life. And all of that, by the way, is in some measure true. But they distort it out of all proportion with the Scripture. And the fact that they wear a $10,000 suit and have a nice smile does not make what they say completely true. Some of those people have got better, they got more money tied up in hairstyle than I've got in, in cars, okay? And they're unfaithful to God's Word. Because they only tell people what they want to hear and what will curry favor with the cultural leaders of our day. But they're unfaithful. And you do well not to listen to them. You want a list? I'll give you a list later. Okay? Of some ones to avoid. But guys like Joel Osteen, virtually everybody who has ever been on TBN, or the 700 Club, or the rest of it, just stay away from that. It's garbage. They're unfaithful preachers. They're just like the guys in Micah's day telling people half the message. 
I'm done with that. We're going to move that on. Move on. Okay. Verse 12 and 13. Here's some hope. You can circle these verses because these are some hopeful sounding verses. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before him, the Lord at their head. Now, what, what's happening in these two verses is the Lord's promise that despite all that's going to happen, that's going to be negative. Despite the judgment that's going to fall, despite the exile, despite going into captivity, despite being stripped of everything, in spite of all of that, God says, I'm going to restore the remnant. And the remnant is a prophetic word for those in the nation who, in spite of everything, continued to follow and trust in the Lord. And God says, I'm going to gather them up again. I'm going to gather them like sheep in a pen. And there won't be just a few of them. He says, it'll be a noisy multitude. And verse 13 mentions, he who opens the breach. Now, the breach is not a door. It's when you, if you've seen Lord of the Rings, remember the Battle of Helm's Deep? And they go in, the orcs go in, and they stick that bomb under the wall there at the, at the culvert, and it blows a hole in the wall. That's a breach. And then all the orcs rush in by the horde. And that's what happens with the city of Jerusalem that the Babylonians come in and they open a breach. But God says, He, and He means essentially, I'm taking responsibility. I'm the one who allowed the city to be taken. I'm the one who put the breach in the wall. He who opens the breach will be going up before them. In other words, the same God who led you into exile is going to lead you out of it. And he says, you will break through out of the captivity, just like you they broke through the walls to take you into captivity. You'll break out of the captivity. And I'm going to lead you out. And you're going to pass right, by, out, right out of the gates of Babylon. And the king is going to lead you back. And the Lord is going to lead you ahead of him. And, by the way, that happened. Seventy years after the city of Jerusalem was taken. Jerusalem was taken in 586 B.C. Seventy years later. According to the word that God gave Jeremiah, he said, Seventy years are going to pass in exile. And for all the Sabbaths, uh, all the Sabbath years you didn't take for the land, the land is going to have rest for 70 years. And... So for 70 years they remained in captivity in Babylon. And then... Babylon in one night was overthrown. Just boom. And they came in through a breach in the wall, incidentally. And the Medes and the Persians took the city, Babylon, overthrew the Babylonian kingdom in one night. And then right after that, Cyrus the Persian sent all the people who wanted to go back to the land. And the Lord led them. And he took with him Zerubbabel, the descendant of David, to be the governor. John fulfilled his promise. 
in the same way. Can I tell you this? Judgment is coming. God is a just God. He is patient. He is long-suffering. He waits a long time. About, about between the beginning of Micah's ministry and the exile, there were about 150 years that elapsed. God is patient. He takes his time. But eventually he does judge, and there is going to come a day of judgment in our day, in our time, in our place. But God will save out of those who judge it. Righteous. He will lead them into land. What I'm talking about? There's a new land that's coming. It's going to be ours. And God will save even as he is bringing judgment. He is saving a people for him. Why hasn't God brought the judgment yet? Well, Peter tells us because the ark isn't ready. Same as in Noah's day, you know, God, God told Noah, build an ark, and you're going to save on it two of every kind of unclean animal and seven of every clean animal and all your family. And once the ark was built, the door was shut, and the flood water came. And he says, Peter says, in the same way, God is patient with you, meaning those who believe in Christ, not wanting any to perish. And when the ark is ready, then judgment comes. When the last person who is going to trust in Christ before the day of judgment repents and, and turns to Christ, when that happens, then the Lord will return to heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel trumpet call of God. Judgment will fall. But out of it will be saved God's people. And God will lead his people into And we have the opportunity to be among them. If we put our trust in Christ, we will be among them. Amen? Let's pray.